Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon is by Gary Brueger. It was preached at God's Bible School and College School Revival in 1988. It is titled, Bartering for Eternity. I know you'll enjoy this message. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. So good to be with you this beautiful Lord's Day morning. I am full of praises and thanksgiving to the Lord for the wonderful service last evening. Isn't he good? So gracious, I tell you. What a blessing the choir was to our hearts as they sang the glory down. And then as people were responsive to the movings of the Spirit of God. Amen. I thank the Lord for the privilege of being in that service last evening. I want to take this opportunity to express my appreciation and deep gratitude to President Miller, the administration, and all those who had a part in extending the invitation to me to come and to be here this week. I feel so very, very unworthy. I count it a high honor and a privilege to be here at my alma mater and to share this week, I thank the Lord for his help, and I want to express my appreciation to you for the kind and generous offering that, that you gave. May the Lord just richly bless you. And I challenge you to mind God today. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. Three things stand out so significantly to me in this chapter, the 16th chapter of Matthew. Christ has asked his disciples who he is, and they have responded, he's the Christ, the Son of God. They've, they've realized that. And then... He begins to declare to them why he came. When he begins to tell them that he has come to provide salvation. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. There I'm going to suffer. There I'm going to die. But I'm going to be raised the third day. And then he begins to tell what is important. And I'd like for you to notice with me verse 24 of Matthew 16. And we shall read the next four verses. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works." Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful Sunday morning, the privilege to be with these, our friends, 
those of kindred faith in your house. And we pray now, Lord, that you would help these next few moments with thou anoint lips to speak, ears to hear, hearts to understand. And Lord, will you receive all the glory and the praise. Crown this service with your presence and with victory. And we shall thank you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 26, two tremendous questions. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I want to speak to you about bartering for eternity. To barter is something that is coming into play in recent years. I've read in some trade journals of people who are trying to lessen their Social Security uh, payments and their income tax that they have been starting to barter, exchanging work or products in exchange for something that they do not have. That gives me the picture of a marketplace. We're very sensitive and conscious and aware of exchanges in our society, be they monetary or in the bartering system. Every hour on the hour through the day when during the weekdays we are given updates on the Dow Jones average, what the market is doing. And though that may not affect many of us, to many in our society, it is very, very important. It is very, very vital. We're in the midst of a society that teaches people how to work, educates them how to earn a living, how to live this life. But in the majority of colleges, universities, and sad to say, even the homes of America, there is little emphasis on the most important part of man, his soul. We make it mandatory for children to go to school, and I believe that's right and proper. I'm glad that I was made to go to school. It wouldn't have been my idea. I probably wouldn't have gone unless I was made. But they told me that I needed to go to at least 12 years, and then I finally graduated with a high school diploma. They told me that that was a good start, but that I needed to go on to college, and I did. And I graduated with a degree from college. Those things are to prepare us for a productive working life of anywhere from 30 to 40 years. One of the great goals that we hear referred to so much is retirement. Whether it's at the ordinary age of 65 or a little bit early at 62, but now I'm hearing of people who are retiring at 55, people who are retiring at 50, and the other day I met one who was at the ripe old age of 37, and he was already retired. He said, I've made it, I don't have to work, I've got it made, and the rest of my life I'm going to take it easy. But is that the real goal in our lives? Retirement? Because after retirement, then how long is that going to last? No one really knows. Sometimes it's two or three years, sometimes five or ten or fifteen, but however many it may be, it's very, very short in comparison with eternity. And so that part of me this morning, I think a backwoods preacher, I read and I kind of uh, enjoyed it. He was waxing eloquent. Someone was listening to him and they recorded it. They wrote it down, I should say. They said he was telling people about the soul. He said, after Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, 
He said there was one, he said there was three spirits that met. He said there was the spirit of the earth, and there was the spirit of the air, and there was the spirit of the water. And they said, where are we going to hide the soul of man? And this old backwoods preacher, he said, the spirit of the earth spoke up and said, I know where to hide the soul of man. He said, I'll take that soul and I'll hide it deep in my bosom and he'll never get there. He'll never find it. He went on to say that the spirit of the air said, oh, no, said man may come up with some sort of an invention. He may begin to mine in the depths of you and he may discover his soul. And so the spirit of the air said, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to give me the soul of man and I'll take the soul of man and hide it behind the, the most distant star. But the spirit of water said, oh, no. Man may eventually devise some sort of a ship uh, that would sail through the air and he may be able to go to even that distant star and there he would find his soul. You give man's soul to me and I'll hide it from him by hiding it 10,000 fathoms deep in the depths of the ocean. But the spirit of the earth said, oh, no, if man may invent an air, a ship that would sail through the air, he may invent something that would enable him to go through the sea and through the depths of the ocean, and he would find his soul. The old backwoods preacher said, Satan come along right then and said, you fools, don't hide man's soul anywhere like that. We'll just put man's soul inside him. And when he can't see it, he won't think much about it, and it'll be hid from him. Well, that was just kind of a backwoods preacher way of putting it. But we live in the midst of a society that people don't think much about their soul. We think about earning a living. We think about getting ahead. We think about accumulating. We think about being healthy. We're in an age uh, that is very fitness conscious. The joggers, the weight reduction, the diet plans, and oh, there's a lot of fitness consciousness around us. But you never really hear of any clinics that deal with the soul. In fact, to the majority of the world, that would be very, very unimportant, very, very uneventful, and very, very unprofitable. But our soul is the most important thing that we have. I read of a tribe down that lives on the Amazon River that at certain periods of the year they just stop where they are and they squat down and they sit there for a period of time. And if you ask them what they're doing, they say, we are waiting for our souls to catch up with our bodies. Did you ever feel like that? In our hurried pace, we hurry through life. You know, even around an institution like this, tomorrow says Monday, classes, business as usual. And we grind it out hoping and looking forward and longing for the weekend. But we're right in the midst of the weekend now and we're already thinking about tomorrow and next week. And you know, it's just, a, it's just an endless cycle that we hurry on and hurry on and hurry on. But where are we going? And it's time that we remember that every day, though there's no money exchanged, we are bartering for eternity. Because I am doing something with and for my soul every day. The Milan Cathedral in Italy has three beautiful doors. Over one door is a rose. There is an inscription beneath the rose that says, That which pleases is but for a moment. Over another door is a thorn. An inscription beneath the thorn that says, That which troubles is but for a moment. Over the third door is a cross. Under the cross, the inscription, that alone is important 
which endures forever. And our souls are going to endure forever. When Charlemagne's tomb was opened some 200 years ago, when they found his, his skeleton sitting on the throne as was his request to be buried, there was a parchment that was placed on his lap. His index finger was pointing to a particular place on that parchment. It was the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 36, a verse similar to our text this morning. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? So I want to think with you for just a few moments about the value of the world, the value of the soul, and then of the dangers to the soul. What is the value of the world? If we were to think of just land value, it's overwhelming. Last month I was privileged to go to uh, do some preaching in the country of Mexico. As I took my family and we drove down and then we returned, we were coming through a portion of Texas where the great King Ranch is located. It kind of boggled my mind to think of a man who owns a ranch that is comprised of 853 thousand acres. Eight hundred and fifty-three thousand acres. I said, wow, that's quite a that's quite a possession. And we think of some who are rich with some of the mines that they have, whether they would be Gold or silver or coal or whatever it might be. We hear of different ones who have amassed a little bit of this world's goods. But the idea that our text brings to us is that the value of the world is a very uncertain one. If you could gain the world. So it's a very uncertain one. I have to believe that it is a very unsatisfying Gain. Years ago, I was pastoring a man when in his mid-30s, he had already become a millionaire. We were working one day out in one of his barns and working on a tractor. I was helping him a little bit. And as we were talking and talking about this world's goods and, and uh, so forth, he stopped and he said, Brother Brueger said, I want to tell you something. He said, I used to be a high school principal. He said, I used to worry about buying shoes for the kids just like you do. I used to worry about making my car payments and about something breaking on the car. He said, I used to, I used to really be concerned about things like that. He said, now, he said, I don't have to worry about anything like that. He said, I've got it. But he said, now I'm here to tell you that my worries and my concerns are far greater than they ever were when I was in your position. Because he said, now I have to worry about somebody maybe kidnapping my wife or one of my children and holding them for ransom. He said, I have to worry about somebody trying to, uh, trying to some con artist or some investment artist and someone trying to come and trick me out of it. And he said, my life is a whole lot more complex than yours is. And then I read where Mr. Rockefeller was asked by someone, with all of your millions of dollars, would you please tell me how much money does it take to satisfy a man? Rockefeller smiled. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And many in this world think that if they could just get some money, a lot of it, 
their problems would cease. About two years ago, I came across an article that at that time was had the, the writer of it had done a little survey of 14 people who had won $5 million or more in jackpots or in lotteries. 14 individuals or families who had won $500, million or more. It had been some years since most of them had won their money. And naturally, they thought if we ever could get a hold of a great amount of money, happiness is going to follow. But that man wrote in depth in that article, nearly every family, divorce had ravaged the home. Not only divorce, but they were troubled by people who were, who were asking for money. They were troubled by relatives that they didn't even know they had. They confessed that they were just pestered and plagued. And every last one, well, some of them had even committed suicide, so they certainly weren't included in this. But every one of them said, if we had it to do over again, we would never, never want to win that money again. It ruined our lives. And yet people today are thinking, if I could only get it. But if you do get it, it's a very unsatisfying game. It's a very difficult game, and certainly it's a very, very temporary game. But it's a game that would be so, so demanding. Because you see... We as mortals are literally consumed, can be consumed by the things that we're supposed to possess. That if we don't watch it, they soon begin to possess us. I remember as a teenage boy, I thought what I really needed and what I really wanted was a car. Sound familiar? <laughs> I told my dad how important it was for me to have a car. Honey, he said, all right, son, said, you're working. You've got your own money. If you want a car, I'll help you get a car. Dad took me shopping for a car. I found a, a little 57 Chevy that, uh, boy, I thought, that is a sweetheart. That's the one I want. And I paid the grand sum of $495 for that car. I was so happy when I drove that thing home. I didn't even notice all that blue smoke rolling out the back end of it. I mean, it had problems. I was so happy and I took it home. I washed it and I shined it and I cleaned it. And oh, I tell you, I was proud of my little 57 Chevy. Until one morning I went out and I turned the key and it went, mm, mm. What's wrong with this thing? I didn't know anything about a car, and I got out, and I learned they got to have a good battery. So I soon invested in a battery. Hey, they hadn't told me that. And then it wasn't too long when I put my foot on the brake, there's something grinding. And I had, to, I had to get a brake job. And then the mufflers got loud, and I had to put... And you know, before long, I was broke. I was broke. And a lot of times, I just had to leave that car set. I had to, I had to just walk where I wanted to go. I thought, you know, there's not quite as much glory in owning a car as what, uh, as what I was led to believe there is. And now, I have to own a car. And I still don't get particularly blessed about it. Because they still just figure out ways of nickel and diamond you to death. I mean, they're just always after you. If it's not something on the car, then it's your insurance or it's a replacement. Or there's just always something. And then I've observed that a home is just the same way. And I see men and women 
And I can feel it myself that in the little bit of what we do possess, it has the ability to just keep us busy and to keep us depleted. And I'm sure that in an institution like this, I forget the land area, something like eight acres, maybe more, the different buildings. I am certain that Brother Miller carries a tremendous load in just thinking about the roofs that need replaced and the different things in just maintaining a property that's located right here in Cincinnati. We call it God's Bible School. And yet, it is more than one man can even handle it himself. He needs God's help and he needs our help also. Can you imagine the gain of the world? Oh, it would be an awesome thing. So the value of the world is not what we would be led to think that it is. Because it's so uncertain, it's so trifling, it's so temporary, and it's so unsatisfying. Let's think now of the value of the soul. There's only two things that I'd like to say about that, and I believe that we can see the value of the soul in these two things. Number one, the great atonement. The fact that God gave his only begotten son to redeem souls. And I see the value of the soul when Luke records that at the conversion of one soul, there's joy in heaven. Last night, heaven was rejoicing because souls were praying through. That gives me an insight into the tremendous value of the soul, something that would cause all of heaven to rejoice. William Colin Bryant wrote in Thanatopsis, So live that when thy summons comes to join the innumerable caravan that moves to the pale realms of, of death, where each shall take his place. Thou go not like a quarry slave at night, scourged to his dungeon, but sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust. Approach thy grave like one who wraps the drapery of his couch about him and lies down to pleasant dreams. So live that when that time does come, it's not going to be frightening, it's not going to be overwhelming. But you can say, all is well with my soul. Longfellow cut what we're trying to say this morning in his psalm of life. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real. Life is earnest. And the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest. Was not spoken of the soul. When you compare the value of the world. That is so temporary. So transient. With the value of the soul. That is of eternal Wealth and weight of importance. Any court in the land looking at those two in comparison would say, don't invest in the world. It's passing. It's transient. It won't last. But this, that is eternal. It's important. It's valuable. Do everything you can to take proper care of it. We only guard and value what is important. Around this institution, I am certain this morning that offices where valuable machines, perhaps over in the office where what money the school would have would be kept, it's, 
under lock and key? Because it is valuable. We lock the doors at night because our families are valuable. President Miller has never sent any of the guards out here to, to guard this gravel lot, lest anyone should come in and steal gravel stones. No, that'd be foolish. No value. But that which is valuable, even around an institution, even around our homes, we guard it, we value it, we protect it, we guard it. Because there's dangers to it. And there's even dangers to our soul. I think of the danger to the soul of the danger of association. I learned this my first year in a Bible school. It was not here. It was another Bible school. And I remember being early in that year. It was the first time I'd been away from home. And I kind of buddied up with a fellow that was that kind of befriended me. He was away from home the first time also. We got we got close. I spent time with him. We we didn't room together. Our rooms were, were separate, but I kinda liked him. He kinda liked me. I never shall forget one day the Dean of Men called me aside. He said, Gary, I want to talk to you about something. I said, Yes, sir. He said, it's about your association, and he named this boy that I was chumming around with. He said, I observe in you a young man who wants to mind God, who wants to go with God. He said, I observe in that young man someone who has not settled that issue. And he said, he is going to drag you down. I want to talk to you about not spending so much time. You don't have to eat meals with him all the time. You don't have to be with him. I want you to break away from the relationship that you're forming with that boy because I don't feel like he really wants to serve God, and I feel like you do. I thought about that. And I'm so glad that my mother and dad taught me to take instruction. I'm just like everybody else. It wasn't my idea to take instruction. I remember one of my first lessons in it. I was three years old. My mother had told me to never climb on the cabinets. You'd fall and get hurt. But I can well remember, though I was just three years of age, I was thirsty one morning. It was a beautiful, sun-lit morning like this morning. I don't know where Mother was in the house, but she wasn't in the kitchen, and I was thirsty. I looked up at that inviting countertop, and I thought, boy, if I could just get up there, I could get me a drink of water. I thought, how did you get up there? can't reach it and I can remember to this day going over to the cabinet and I pulled out the first drawer and then I pulled out not the next one but the the third drawer and I climbed up on the first drawer and then I climbed up on the next drawer and that one got me high enough that I got up on the countertop then I had a problem I couldn't reach back to the back of the sink I looked around for something that would help me turn on the water. I saw a table knife laying there, and so I reached over with it, and I hit that faucet handle a lick, and it just come on full blast. Then I thought, well, I got up here for a drink, and I was looking for a glass. The water is just pouring out the the, the spigot, and about that time, I heard footsteps. I knew I had a problem. I turned around, and there was my mother looking daggers at me and coming for me. I looked at her, and she said, Gary Lee, what are you doing? And I just looked at her and stuck out my lower lip and went, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. 
Now, I stuck out a very beautiful, pretty little lower lip. When I brought it back, it was no longer pretty and beautiful. I believe my mother has one of the fastest backhands in the Midwest. Boom, she had me. I never stuck out my lower lip again. I honestly didn't. I used that illustration in a church where I was pastoring one time. And a lady who, had, uh, who was a problem in the church after the service, she said to me, she said, I think your mama must be one of the most meanest and cruelest of women that has ever lived. Any woman that would smack a little three-year-old boy in the, in the mouth like that, uh, so, so hard to, to, to bloody his lip, she's just got to be so cruel. I had suffered quite a bit from this woman's tongue and her mouth, and I said, well, sister, I know this. You would have been a lot better off if your mama had done it to you. But there's a principle that comes through here. I wouldn't have taken that admonition from my college dean if there hadn't been something back there early in my life that had helped me to take correction, to take instruction. And to me, that's one of the tremendous dangers in our day that I see is is this lack of accountability. We don't want anybody telling us anything. I mean, we are going to run our own show, and that's probably one of the areas that many of you new students are going to chafe under the very most, is having to sign out and having to ask permission. Man, when I was home, I didn't have to do this. Mom and Dad knew they could trust me. I, they, just, they, they just knew they could trust me. Why don't they trust me around here? Well, even, even if there was no problem with trusting you, with trusting three or four hundred boys and girls in a limited, confined area like this, even if there was no problem like that, you still need the accountability whether you see it or whether you don't. Some of these tremendous ministries that have gone, have gone afoul and run, a, run amuck in the mud in recent months and years, one of the things that is so outstanding about them is the lack of accountability. And so in any area of your life, I don't care how old you are, how powerful you may become, Accountability is a very tremendous thing for every last one of us. I find that even as a, as a conference president. I'm not the boss. I don't run the show. I'm accountable to a board of men. I'm accountable to my churches. Accountability is a tremendous safeguard for every one of us. Don't chafe under it. Thank God for it. This danger of association. I thank God for a faithful dean who spoke to me. I saw the danger of association in a friend of mine, the one I mentioned the other evening, who he preached the first half of my first sermon and I preached the second half. He was called to preach. He was a son of a wealthy, wealthy man, an un, unsaved man. His mother was a Christian, but his dad was a very successful businessman and uh, certainly not a Christian. He finally said to him when his boy told him he was going to, when he was going to go to Bible school, he said, no son of mine's ever going to be in a Bible school. No son of mine's ever going to preach. And as long as he took that approach, Richie stood. But then his dad said, hey, Richie, I've been thinking. I've been hard on you. And here's what the deal I'm going to make with you. If you will just go to the university of my choice for one year so that you get a little business 
instruction. Then after the first year in the university of my choice, I will send you to any Bible school you want to go and I'll pay the entire bill. You won't have to work or anything. And besides that, Richie, if you'll take this deal, I'm buying you a brand new car today. And Richie said, man, that's tremendous. I'll do it, Dad. But his dad knew the tremendous danger, or the power, I should say, the influence of associates. And he sent him away to a high university in Athens, Ohio. And before Christmas time of that first year, Richie was backslid, away from God, and his life has been full of twists and snarls, and today he's an unhappy man, so unhappy. There's a danger in who you associate with. There's the danger of acquired habits. There's the danger of the uncertainty of life. My grandfather was a wicked man. He was the only son, only child of a free Methodist preacher. But granddad never lived for God. He was very wicked. He made this statement. He said, I want to die of a slow disease, tuberculosis, cancer, something slow, so that when I'm dying slowly, I'll know I'm dying, and then I'm going to get right with God. While I was a student here at God's Bible School, Granddad had his first stroke. It didn't completely impair him. It slurred his speech for a few weeks. He was still able to get around. And Granddad began to seek God. But then another stroke, and this time his speech is permanently affected. This time one side of his body no longer responds to him, and so he's in a wheelchair, but he's still alive. And he's still in a feeble way attempting to find God. Another stroke, and he's impaired a bit more. And then another stroke. And I suspect that from the time that he had his first stroke until his last stroke that took his life, it was probably a period of some 15 months. My grandpa got his wish. He died a slow, slow death. With a heavy heart, I tell you also that he died with a cloud over him. His spiritual skies were not clear. It wasn't well with his soul, I'm afraid, though I do hope that he made it. That is a danger. That is a danger of just putting putting things off. Because there's the danger of the certainty of death. It's going to get every one of us. It's coming. And the youngest and strongest one here this morning has no more promise of tomorrow than the oldest and most feeble of us here this morning. And there's the tremendous danger that when a soul is lost, it is lost forever. There's no second chance. There's no second opportunity. There's no replay. When a soul is lost, it's lost forever. But God has given to each one of our souls some faculties. That if we will use those faculties, they will help us. If we abuse them, I am certain that they will haunt us. The first one is the faculty of understanding I am fascinated by the power of language. You know, it's so good to be able to understand. Last month when I was there in Mexico, I had to preach with an interpreter. As I preached, then 
he would say to the people in the Spanish language what I had just said in English. I would listen to them testify. And, and I could read the countenance and I could kind of sense the spirit, but I didn't understand. But I'm so glad this morning for the faculty of being able to understand that I can read God's word and that when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And I can understand that. I can comprehend it. My mind can, can deal with that. And I realize that if I do my part in the confessing, God will do his part in forgiving. Thank God for the capacity to understand. Think of the ability to make a judgment, an evaluation, to make choices, to make decisions. I'm a free moral agent this morning. I do not live this way because I have to live this way. I live this way because I love to live this way. It satisfies me. It makes me happy to have my heart in a place of a right relationship with Almighty God. It makes me feel good to lay down at night and to know that if this is the day that Jesus comes for me, it's all right. If this is the day that he sees fit to call me home personally, it's all right. I'm ready. But I've made some choices, some judgments. God has given me my soul, the ability to make those choices. And every one of us have that capacity. We're either making right choices or wrong choices. He's given my soul the faculty of affection, to love. There's silence in love. But if a man love the world, the word says the love of the Father is not in him. I'm either loving God this morning, and because I cannot serve two masters, if I love him, then I'm serving him. But God has given my soul the faculty, the ability to love. God has given my soul the ability the function of the will. A will. Where that when I, when I do make a decision, it's a will. It's a fixed purpose. I thank God for the day that that will was yielded to his lordship. He's given me the, ability, the, the faculty of the conscience. That watchdog of the soul, some call it. There's no excitement as it takes its seat. But to me, there's a conscious knowledge of right and of wrong. And that conscious God has given to each one of us. Not to trample over it. Not to sear it. Not to abuse it. But to keep it tender. My conscience has, has been pliable and it's warned me in some of life's circumstances. I have a preacher friend who told me of going to a factory in Akron. Oh, I suppose this has been probably about 12 years ago. He said while he was holding a revival meeting in the particular church in the Akron area, one of the men said to him one night after the service, would you like to see tires made? Well, sure, I've never seen tires made. He said the arrangements were made and I was going to get to go on a tour through that rubber factory. He said the man was allowed by his superiors to conduct the tour for me and to take me. He said when we got into the department where he worked, he said, Preacher, he said, have you ever felt any rubber before it goes into a tire? And he said, no. I said, I sure haven't. Well, he said, come on over here. He said, I'll let you, I'll let you feel some of it. 
And he said, I didn't think anything as the man went over and, and reached in a, in a container there and pulled out some of this rubber. And he said, hold out your hand. And he said, I held out my hand. And he said, the man just slapped it down in his hand. And he said, here it was molten rubber. And he said, it was hot. And he said, I began to dance. And he said, just try to shake it off. And he said, oh, it was so hot. He said, it was painful. And he said, the man got quite a kick out of it. And he grabbed it quickly and took it off my hand. And he said, he just stood there holding it. And then he dropped it harmlessly back into, into that vat. And he said, my hand was burning. It was hurting. He said, man, he said, how do you do that? He said, you know, preacher, he said, when I started working here many years ago, he said it was back during the war. And he said, I'd work here. And he said, when I went home at night, he said, my hands hurt so bad. They were blistered. He said, they were bleeding. He said, I didn't think I was going to be able to come to work the next day. But he said, I had to get to... I had to keep my job going. And he said, I've done this job down through these years. And he said, now, preacher. And he went over and he got another big handful of it. And the preacher said, he just held it in his hands. He rolled it around, just played with it, and then threw it back in. And he said, now, preacher. He said, what bothered me once, I don't even feel. You know, you can do that with your conscience. What bothered you once, now you don't even feel. But God gave to your soul that faculty of the conscience to warn, to alarm. Don't abuse it. It's to help you. And then the faculty of memory. My, we have some precious memories. There's no noise as our memory will go through the archives of our mind and pull down beautiful pictures from our childhood. Fond, fond things that happened when our grandparents were still around. Blessings of the Lord, services like last evening, Services where God's word is being preached like this morning. I am confident that every one of these soul faculties that God has given us are tremendous help to us. But if we abuse them, I am confident that they will haunt us through eternity. Because in eternity, if we have dealt faithlessly with our soul the very re the very fact that we understand and we understand that we have missed and ruined the greatest opportunity in life of being right with God and now we have we understand we are lost forever we will think of the things that we loved instead of the things that we should have loved we will think of the will that we set of our own to do what we wanted rather than surrendering and yielding it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our conscience that was faithful to us will prick us in eternity and remind us how we trampled over it. And our memory, one of the most painful things and troublesome things, will be the fact that we remember what might have been. A high school girl in Montgomery, Alabama, had a dream one night. In closing, I'd just like to share the dream with you. Her name was Claudetta Fulmer, and I'll just go ahead and use her name in the first person. She said, I had gone to bed that night and I was feeling fine. But in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, the trump sounded. 
And she said, I was ushered into a grand arena where that I'm standing on clouds. In front of me is a great desk. I, I can't see on top of the desk and what's on the other side of it, but I don't really have to see, for I know what's there. Around me is my family, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, then my grandparents. And I start to say, Granny, I thought you were dead, but there's something that forbids me to break the silence. And she said, with a thud, a great book is opened on top of that desk, and names are read. As each name is read, they are summoned in front of this great desk, and then they are either placed over on the right side with sheep, or they are placed over on the left side as goats. She said, all too soon, though millions have been judged before me, all too soon, it was my turn. And that great voice said, Claudetta Fulmer of the 16th generation of the Fulmers. I fell on my knees and screamed, oh God, please, no, give me another chance, give me another chance. But two beings, white, in their garments, come one on either side and pick me up and set me down. Over on one side, there's a panorama of my life. What I did, what was in my heart to do. I hear oohs and ahs. She thought that. She did that. But it makes no difference to me now what they're saying or thinking because it's that one that's on the other side of the desk. And then those words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I know you not. And I'm taken and I'm herded over with those that are sobbing and cursing the day that they were born. All too soon, judgment is over. And there's a great door that opens into a great black abyss. And we're herded down that great ramp like so many animals. And then with a shudder, the fires of hell are ignited. And I'm walking the corridors of the lost now. Worms are crawling in my flesh and I'm screaming and I'm wailing and I'm crying. How long have I been here? How long have I been here? Is it a day? An hour? year? I don't know. I don't know. But I know I'll never get out of here. And then a hand shakes me and says, Claudetta, time to get up to go to school. And she said, Mother, Mother, God's been dealing with me. Before that schoolgirl got ready for another school day, she got ready for heaven by praying through. But what was a dream, a nightmare for her can be a grim reality for those who do not, do not deal properly in their bartering for eternity. You have a precious never dying soul that is worth more than the whole world. If it's not right with God, would you do something about it right now? Would you stand please? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. 
Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the